Genesis chapter 9, we are up to chapter 9. I call it this, I call chapter 9, Restoration and Respect. And here's why. We've just come through the flood. Noah has now, we've, we've landed, and I don't, I don't think we take into account really what's going on here. When, when Noah lands and they disembark from the ark, God meets with him. In fact, the first thing he does, he builds an altar, has a sacrifice, and God meets with him. Oh, that's, that's a really good thing. You would want that. God meets with him and he lays down some ground rules. He says, hey, Noah, let me give you some uh, promises. In return, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to give you some commands. We call that Today we call that the Noahic Covenant. You may have heard of that before. The Noahic Covenant. Is that covenant still in force today? Is God still bound by his word that he will not destroy the entire world by water? Yes, yes, it's still in force. Okay, that's important. Because there are some people who, I, I think probably out of good motives they just haven't thought through the implications of their theology a lot of times we do that there are a lot of people who have pretty shaky theology not because they mean to but because they haven't thought through the implications of what they're holding does that make sense it's the same thing with logic there are a lot of people who are very illogical not because they want to be illogical because they just haven't thought through how it works right so on the one hand they'll say don't judge me on the other hand they don't realize they just made a judgment right? does that make sense People use self-defeating statements a lot. Um, And the same same thing happens with them theologically. The same thing happens with Christians theologically. A lot of Christians hold very poor theological positions simply because they haven't thought through how that works out. Okay, So a lot of Christians will say this. They'll say the Noahic covenant was done away with. Well, that's, that's in the Old Testament. Well, that is true. It is in the Old Testament, but it has not been done away with. Just because it's in the Old Testament does not mean it's been done away with. There was a very small, specific portion of Scripture that was, if you want to say done away with, okay, I don't like that terminology. It was fulfilled in Christ. Right? You don't have to take a sacrifice to the temple today, right? right? When you sin, you don't go find a turtle dove or a lamb, do you? Why? Because Christ is that final sacrifice, right? So that part of the Old Testament was fulfilled. That's why we don't have to... It's a good thing. That's why when you come to church today, you don't have a big bloody altar in the middle of the congregation here, right? You don't come in and go, hey, uh, anybody got a turtle dove I can buy or a lamb? I, I need to put to death a sacrifice. I've been sinning this week, right? No. Christ is the final sacrifice. Good thing for us. I mean, we'd eat well maybe. I don't know. But the Noahic covenant is still in force. It's still in effect. I want you to realize that. that that's a big deal. It's a big deal to me. Part of the reason it's a big deal to me is because the, the professor who teaches ethics at Oklahoma Baptist University believes that. That is some very poor theology. That is a very aberrant view. Actually, what he actually said in the class was, he's not even sure it would have been moral for the Israelites to put people to death in the Old Testament. Sir, what you're saying then is, God gave an immoral command. That might be the height of hubris and arrogance. I have a problem with that. You should too. Okay. So yes, yes, the Noahic covenant is still in force. Well, let's read about it. Chapter 9 says this. So God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. By the way, that's for you too. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a good thing to do. Christian marriage, have children. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. And on every bird of the air, and all that move on the earth, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be for food for you. 
I've given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat the flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, that's a big deal right there. Because up to this point, what was it that we were commanded to eat? Mankind. When I say we, I mean mankind. Was commanded to eat what? Plants. Only plants. Right? The green herb. Uh, fruits, vegetables, anything with, you know, any plant life, seed in it. That's for you for food. Now, this is the first time that we're seeing that God says, look, not only can you eat plants, you can also eat animals. Right? Now, later, God would modify that, wouldn't he? Under the Mosaic law, he would say, now, there's specific kinds of animals I want you to stay away from. That was not because, Hebrews later tells us, basically, that was not because those things will make you spiritually impure. It was bad for your health, right? There are still things you can eat today that are very lawful, but they're not great for your health. And typically, those are the things that we love, aren't they? I eat far too many of those, I'm sure. But he says this, it's lawful, it's okay. You can eat meat now for sustenance. That's a big deal. Why is that a big deal? Because Noah and his children are going to spread out throughout all the earth. There are places where you can live where if you don't eat meat, you may die. In fact, there are places where you live, I mean, you know, today you could probably supplement it, you know, just go to the supermarket. But 400 years ago, if you were going to live in, you know, somewhere like Alaska or somewhere like Upper Siberia, if you don't eat meat, you're not going to make it. You can't get the calories, right? So this is a very important point, okay? It's not sinful to eat meat. I've been, been on a vegetarian diet for the last 12 days. I feel like that's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> there are some meats that are very good. There are some meats that you think about. Man. Yeah, it's not sinful to eat meat, okay? And here's the place where we start seeing that. Every moving thing that lives shall be for you food. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. By the way, strangely enough, in Acts, that's repeated. One of the, um, one of the bunch of the Gentile converts that Paul had made, basically they write and they say, hey, what are, we, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to follow the Old Testament law? Like, what are we supposed to do? And they said, no, just, here, here's just a handful of, of, of guidelines for you. But one of them was this. Don't eat meat with the blood in it or things strangled. That is not because it will make you ceremonial or, or spiritually unclean. That's actually a really good principle for life. If you would like to live a long life, don't eat the blood of stuff and don't eat stuff that you find that's already dead. Sounds crazy, but that will probably lengthen your lifespan quite a bit. If you do eat things that you find that are dead on the side of the road or you do decide you're going to, you know, drink raw blood, which is, it's hard for me to imagine, but there are some cultures that do it. There are a lot of diseases that you can catch just from that. Okay? It, it will not be good for your lifespan. I'm just going to let you know. Okay? As a scientist, as a science teacher, don't do it. Okay. Verse 6. Here's what I want to really get into. Verse 6 for about the next three or four verses. Verse 6 is this. Or verse 5, I'm sorry. Verse 5, surely for your lifeblood I'll demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I require it, and from the hand of every man. From the hand of every man's brother I'll require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
And as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it. That is the Noahic covenant. Whoever sheds man's blood, his blood will be shed. Here's what it says. Any beast or any person that takes another person's life are to be put to death. Period. Why is God saying that? Remember, Noah and his kids are repopulating the entire earth. They're going to have to reform civilization. Literally. Right? They're going to reform governments. They're going to reform human society. None of that was there. They got off the boat. They're it. They're it. They are the entirety of human civilization. And so God is laying down some ground rules. Here's the number one ground rule. Man is made in the image of God. The Latin term, imago Dei, right? You've heard that. If you've, if you've been around here very long, you've heard people say that. The imago Dei. Man bears the imago Dei. What's that mean? He bears the image of God. There is something special. There's something different about man that is not found in any other animal. Wolves, I love dogs. Don't get me wrong. Got a couple of dogs. I love dogs. Dogs do not bear the image of God. Wolves and bears and lions and tigers and whatever else you can think of, sheep and cattle, horses, they don't bear the image of God. There is something different about taking the lifeblood of an animal and taking the lifeblood of a person, and that's exactly what God is laying down. You are absolutely forbidden, strang verboten. You may not take the lifeblood of another human being. And if you do, I will require your life as payment. You take someone's life, you forfeit your own. Why? That's how precious it is. It is still precious today. By the way, I want you to notice he makes no, he makes no determination between kinds of people. All people bear the image of God. Why am I saying that? Because Darwin and some others wrote some books in the late 18, well, mid to late 1800s. Darwin's first book came out in 1859, but he really attacked the image of God in his book called The Descent of Man, which came out in 1871. 1859, his book was used as justification for, for holding slaves. Darwin was right. There's different kinds of people, and some people are good only for that because they're really somewhere between beast and person. They're savages. 1871, his book comes out and says, the only thing that remains is for the civilized races of men to replace the savage ones. What was that really an attack on? That was an attack on the Imago Dei. Darwin and his demonic theory attacks the image of God. That theory basically says some people bear the image of God and some people don't. That is absolutely perversion. It's wickedness and it will cause unjust society, period. There were, there were men and women in uh, Australia, Aborigines, who were literally killed just to put on display. Well, it's okay to kill them. They're, they're, they're not really men. They're not all the way evolved yet. So they're really more like beasts. I'm not kidding. The, um, the 19, I, I have some pictures out of an encyclopedia set from the 1930s. The 1930s encyclopedia set, which was taught to the kids in school too, listed a hierarchy of the races. These are the most like God. These are the ones who are not. And I'm not kidding. That is an attack on the Imago Dei. It's wicked, it's perverse. And will cause unjust societies, period. You cannot have a society that's just without 
these principles. Let me give you an example of why. If you do not have, for example, capital punishment, which seems like it's not, not a big deal. Why do you even care? It is a big deal. It's such a big deal to God that it's the first thing he talks to Noah about. Hey, by the way, since you're going to be reestablishing human society, there's a few things you need to know. Number one, if somebody takes somebody else's life, you put them to death. I mean, we just got off the boat. Like, isn't there some other stuff, like some warm fuzzies you want to say first? Like, hey, I love you. No, I already showed you that. You're still alive. But you need to know this. If you're going to reestablish human society, human life is valuable. It's precious. It's made in the image of God. It bears God's image. And if someone snuffs that out, they are to be snuffed out just the same. That sounds hard, but it's true. Why? Why would you do that? Because it forces people in a society to recognize how precious human life is. Do you think if you, if you punished every murder with the death penalty, and I mean swiftly, do you think there'd be more murder or less in that society? A lot less. I can give you an example out of history. One of the most tyrannical, dictatorial leaders probably ever in the history of the earth. Um, had he lived in a modern society, we would have been able to see that much more. But he basically had two rules. You will not kill someone and you will not steal. Because if you do, I'll put you to death. In fact, not only will I put you to death, I'll run a pike through you and we'll sit sit that in the ground in the city square and people can come by and see you impaled. Vlad the Impaler. We have myth, we've mythologized him. We've made him into a myth. He was an actual person. He was the king of where? You know? Transylvania. Transylvania. Who do we make him into in modern mythology? Dracula. Vlad the Impaler, Vlad Dracul. Let me tell you one of the stories that came out of the Middle Ages when he was actually ruling his, his land. There was a merchant that came through with an entire cartload of silver and gold. And so as, as was kind of custom of the day, you come to the leader and go, look, I've got all of these goods. Where can I put them for the night? Typically, they put them in the, the safe, the keep of the castle, the most, that's the stronghold, basically. He says, leave them in the market square. He says, uh, sir, it's silver and gold. And he said, leave them in the market square. And the guy, you know, he wasn't stupid. He didn't argue. Okay, yeah, sounds, that's a good idea. Fine, sure. Because on the way, by the way, you can see, you know, people on pikes. You know this guy has no problem putting people to death. Okay. Left it in the market square. Guess how much went missing? Zero. The story is he left it there three nights and nothing ever went missing. I wonder why that was. He was serious, wasn't he? Now, look, I'm not trying to say that's what I want. Man, let's get a dictatorial, tyrannical ruler. That's what we need. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. When you punish crime, less of that crime occurs. It doesn't mean all of it will disappear. There's no such thing. There is no such thing as a crimeless society. It does not happen. Crimeless society does not happen in my home. Okay, My children steal toys from each other, even if I tell them not to, even if I spank them if they do. Crime will happen in societies because we are depraved, fallen creatures. However, God is saying this. There is something special about the life of a human, and it is to be protected at all costs. And that is exactly what he's saying here. You cannot have a society without capital punishment that's just. And it's important for us to know that, by the way. Because some of the voices today that are clamoring to to do away with capital punishment are coming out of Christians that simply don't read their scriptures enough. 
you know. Let me give you a, let me give you a little illustration, and then I'm going to move on. If you don't have capital punishment, you are actually saying, as a society, some people's lives are worth a lot, and some people's lives aren't worth so much. You cannot have quote all men being created equal. Cannot. If you've got, let's say you've got two guys, Bob and Tony. Why is it when I say Tony, I just think of like some Italian guy, like hey, part of the family now, right? Let's say we got Bob and Tony though. They're two. They're, tw- they're twin brothers. They're uh, let's say they're 25 years old, and they get in a big argument, and Bob's like, "That's it. I don't like Tony. I don't like his pizza. He's done. He kills him. Poor Tony. He's got good pizza. No more of that." And we, instead of saying, "You know what? Because you took someone's life, your life is forfeit," instead we say, "Oh, well, you know, gosh, let's give him another chance. Let's throw him in jail for a while and." We'll rehab him, because that seems to be the going thing today. And so we throw Bob in jail. Let's say he stays in jail 25 years. It's a long time. Gets out. He lives to 100 years old. Do you know what we've just said? We've just said Tony's life is only worth a fourth of Bob's. Bob, he didn't even forfeit his life for 25 years. He just forfeited his freedom for 25 years. If you don't have capital punishment, you do not have justice. Period. You do not live in a society where everyone's created equal. You should know that. That is a very foundational truth, and we as Christians should be saying that. Yes, human life is so precious, if you take it, you have forfeited your own. It's that precious. That's the Noahic Covenant, and it's still in effect today. As for you, be fruitful and multiply. News for you. Hey, Christian, when you get married, it's really okay to have children. I know if you have three or four or five kids, people start saying weird things to you. Oh, my gosh. Have that many children? What's wrong with you? Are you not responsible? Don't know what causes that? I mean, I'm a science teacher. I teach anatomy. I've had people say that to me. We had our third kid. You don't know what causes that, do you? Didn't know having children was uh, bad. We live in a society that says that. Look, we shouldn't get our moral cues from the society that we live in. Can we just agree on that? <laughs> a society that cannot figure out that it's wicked to kill humans, but we should save the whales. A society that has, doesn't even have enough logic to figure that out is not going to give me my moral cues. Forgive me. Sorry. No. No, that's a good thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Why? You're raising up disciples. You're raising up another generation to take the gospel to a lost and dying world. It's a good thing to have children and raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. They're blessed. They're a blessing. Even on days like today when we have to pull over halfway to church, (laughs) clean up, throw up, and change clothes, they're still a blessing. They're a tremendous blessing. And by the way, if you raise children up to be godly, they won't just be a blessing to you. They'll be a blessing to everyone else too. There are children that I have in my classes day by day that that are blessings to me. You know why? Because their parents have raised them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. If you raise children that will walk in a godly manner, that love Christ, that love His Word, they're not just going to, they will be a blessing to you too. Because one day you're going to get older, you know, right? Like my dad, when I was in college, I was certain, like I was free labor for my dad, right? I'm building some fence this weekend. Cool. Why don't you come over? Okay. 
And I did. Why? Well, I love my dad. Right? Sure. Was I, I was being a blessing to him, too. Right? That's a good thing. It's a good thing for us as people to bless, to honor, to serve our parents as well. They'll be a blessing to you, but they'll also be a blessing to others around you. They'll be the kind of blessing that will tell them the gospel. Let me tell you something. If I have a child of mine that does not embrace the gospel and they go wayward, do you think I'm going to be praying for other people to come tell them the gospel? You darn right I will be. And I pray that someone else, someone else's child who's been raised up in the fear and admonition of God and has the gospel in their heart, tells that to mine. They'll be a blessing to me. You raise your children. You have children. And raise them to fear the Lord, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord. They'll be a blessing to you. They'll be a blessing to your neighbors. They'll be a blessing to the church. They'll be a blessing to the society at large that they're in. Jesus said they're the salt of the earth. They are the preservative of that very generation, that very society. We can see that easily with Lot. God says, I'll spare the entire city of Sodom if you can find me five righteous or ten righteous. Just a few, just a little bit, just a sprinkling. That whole society is mocking Lot. Right? Who do you think you are coming here to be our judge? They didn't even realize he's the reason that society is not ashes. And Christians in this society that we live in today are the same. You're the salt of the earth. Whether the society you live in realizes it or recognizes it or not, you are blessing them. You are supplying the moral compass. We are living in a society that has absolutely no moral compass. None. Except for Christians who will stand up and say, this is true and this is right. They may not like that, but that is literally blessing that society, okay? Yes, have children. Raise them up to love the Lord. They'll be a blessing not just to you, but to the society at large. I'd love to go into that more, but I don't have time. Let's go on. Verse 8, God spoke to Noah and to his sons, saying, As for me, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that's with you. This covenant is not just for people, it's for every living thing. Which is why if you have a dog that kills a person, you put the dog to death. You have a bull that kills a person, you put the bull to death. It's a very simple principle. Human life is supremely precious. Every living creature that's with you, the birds, the cattle, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth... Thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy all the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that's with you. For perpetual generations, I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. That, that to us should bring us to awe and marvel when we see the rainbow and we think that is God's sign that even in his judgment, his terrible wrath, he still remembered mercy. He still remembered me and you. He could have cut off all flesh. He could have cut off Noah and his sons as well. Were they sinners? Sure they were. And yet he had mercy. It shall be that I'll bring a cloud over the earth. The rainbow shall be seen in the cloud and I'll remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud and I'll look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that's on the earth. Part the second of this um, chapter comes in verse 18. Now the sons of Noah went out of the ark. They were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. I wonder where the Canaanites came from. Okay. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. And Noah began to be a farmer, and he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine, and he was drunk, and he became uncovered in his tent. And Ham, excuse me, and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and he told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and went backward and covered the nakedness of their fathers, of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. And so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him, and said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he'll be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 days. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Noah was a farmer. He planted a vineyard, drank of the wine, and he was drunk. And that's not a good thing, but I want you to realize something. This is the first time we even have mention of alcohol in the scriptures. It may be that before the flood, the atmosphere was different, and there was no such thing. Fermentation may not have even been known to Noah. I don't know if you've thought about that or not. Okay, it may have been that Noah, Noah had a vineyard before and he knew you, you squeeze the grapes and you get this really good sweet juice and I'm going to have some. And he did that this time and it was a whole different ball game. And it made him drunk. Can you imagine? I want you to imagine this. Imagine the first time. Imagine there's no alcohol even known before. And this guy's, do you think he was, he thought to himself, I'm, I'm dying. Can you imagine, you don't know anything about alcohol, you've never even heard about it, you drink it, you feel like you're flush and you're hot, you think, I don't know what I just ate or drank, but I'm going to die. I'm hot, I don't know what to do, he goes into his tent, takes his clothes off and basically passes out. I'd say that's actually a pretty natural reaction. I don't, you know... I know Noah always gets the short end of the stick on this. He's a drunkard. Dude, it's the first time we even hear about alcohol. He may not even know what it was. And what does Ham do? You know, it's significant. We have all kinds of um, theories on what Ham did. Do you know why I think we have that? I could be wrong. But I think the reason we have all those theories is we don't understand the character of God. I mean, all Ham did was come in and see his dad laying there naked, and he basically went out to mock him to his brothers. That couldn't be so bad. That's not a big deal. That's not a big deal. The reason we think that's not a big deal is because we live in a culture that says that's not a big deal. That's just disrespect. Big deal. No, it's, it's a real big deal. It's a real big deal to God. To disrespect your elders, that's a huge deal. To disrespect your mother and father, that's a real big deal. Let me show you how big a deal that is. The Ten Commandments, sometimes we break up the Ten Commandments into two tables. You ever heard of that, the two tables of the law? The first four commandments basically deal with us and God, right? Have no other gods before me, don't make idols, don't misuse my name, right? Remember the Sabbath, keep it all. Those are all between us and God. They're, they're vertical. 
The next six commandments are all about how we treat each other, how we treat people. You would think the first one would be don't murder. But it's not. It's the second. What is the very first rule that God gives on the second table of the law in the way that we treat other people? The very first one. The only commandment in the New Testament tells us with a promise. What is it? Honor your father and mother. And he says it over and over in Leviticus as well. You will honor your father and mother. You will honor the gray-haired man. In fact, you're just, <laughs> Pastor Randy, that's right. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> I finally made it. I'm getting there little by little. It may take me a while. Yeah, it says we're supposed to honor them. How are we supposed to honor them? In fact, we were to honor them so much, if they came into the room, our job was to stand up to honor them. By the way, we're not just standing up. We're actually offering them our seat. I'm standing up because if you'd like my chair, I can stand. And you may sit here. Why? Because, let me just turn there. Let's go. Leviticus 19. Let's just go there and see that real quickly. The preacher is ADD. I told you he was. I could tell by looking. Well, you're not wrong, sir. Leviticus 19. Chapter 19. Let's read the first few verses here. It's incredible that God is saying all of this stuff, and he, if you will, slips this in here. Like, it doesn't seem to fit. If, if you're thinking from our culture's perspective, it doesn't seem to fit. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Say to all of them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his father and mother, and keep my Sabbath, for I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols, nor make for yourselves molded gods. I am the Lord your God. If you offer a sacrifice, he goes on and gives all these laws. What's the first thing he says? You are to revere, respect your mother and father. That's a stinking big deal to me. Why are you to do that? Because I am holy. In other words, I am telling you this because I am righteous. And if you want to to live in a manner that pleases me, you will respect your father and your mother. That's a huge deal. It's a big enough deal, by the way, that he says it again. Go all the way down to verse 32. You will rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an elder. You will fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. It's no big deal if I, you know, if I pop off to an old man. Yeah, it is a big deal. It's a big deal to God. And by the way, it says a lot about you. It says a lot about your character. I shouldn't tell this story, but I tell way too many of my weaker moments. But I'll tell you this. I I was trying to do what was right, probably didn't do it the right way. It was a few years ago. A lot of years ago. A few years back. I was at Sonic. I was with some friends. In fact, I think we had just got out of judo, to be quite honest with you. Um, and there was a couple of kids that were probably in college. I mean, I was just out of college at the time. And they pulled in right next to, there was a very elderly couple, and they were bumping some really nasty stuff, man, some really nasty stuff. And uh, and I could see that the uh, the lady, the older lady in the side, had asked the guy to turn it down. And he just started cussing her. And I lost it. I got out of the car and I went over there and 
we had a conversation. Actually, the conversation was, get out of the car, and I'm going to teach you some manners. And uh, they drove off. And now I'm not saying that was the right way to handle that. I should not have done that. I get that. That was, it, that was not a good idea. But the reason that it made me angry is because our elders are worthy of respect, even if they're wrong. Even if they're wrong. Even if I disagree with them. They're worthy of respect. Why? Because God commanded it. And he didn't just command it to us who are believers. He commanded it, period. Yeah, we should honor our parents. We should honor our elders. We should learn how to disagree with them in an honorable fashion. Remember uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? The king tells them, hey, you're going to bow down to this idol. This is an idolatrous pagan king. If anybody doesn't, quote, deserve respect, it's this guy. And how do the three guys answer? Do they start jeering him and mocking him? No, they say, King, you live forever. But as for us, your servants, we cannot bow to this idol. What what did they just do? They disagreed with respect. We as Christians should be people known for that. When we disagree, when we have trouble, and we will, we ought to be known as people who can disagree with respect. And especially when we're disagreeing with someone that's 20 years older than us. Or we're disagreeing with our parents or our grandparents. It's okay to disagree with your parents or your grandparents. It's not, disagreeing with them is not dishonorable. It's how you disagree. Does that make sense? I should speak to them, the Bible says, as a father, exhorting them in the faith. What's that mean? I'm not going to hurl insults at them. I'm not going to speak to them with some smart mouth. Why? Because that's dishonoring to God. It doesn't show that I'm smart. That's what we think. We live in a society where if you get the last word and you've got the best cut down, oh, you're the smart guy. You're the intelligent guy. You're cool. Not to God. To God, you're, you're an idiot. You're a fool. You're not following his word. You're not listening to him. If anybody could have the last word, it would have been Christ. If anybody could have had the smart mouth, it would be Christ, and yet he didn't. He was honoring to his parents. He's the creator of the universe, and he was honoring to his parents. Let me show you something else. Let me show you how serious this is. Second Timothy 3. So let's find it in the New Testament too. It's incredible to me. Second Timothy 3. Second Timothy 3.1, know this, in the last days perilous times will come. Why? Because men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money. I want you to realize something. He is telling us a list. Here's how depraved people act. Lovers of themselves, lovers of money. They'll be boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, Without self-control, brutal, despisers of all things good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. That's a pretty weighty list, and disobedient to parents is in the list. How can that be? Because God commands reverence. He commands us to, to honor our parents. 
Our job as Christians is to do that. We should be models of what it is to treat our parents with, with respect, with honor. We should be models of what it is to treat the elders of our land with respect and with honor. It's troubling to me when I see someone, give an example, someone who calls themselves a Christian, and yet they'll revile the World War II veteran or the Vietnam veteran, spit on them. I've seen that. The same person to do that, and another breath will say, well, I'm a Christian. No, you're not. Even if you don't agree with that, fine. There's a way to disagree, though. And that's not the way. Dishonoring, being irreverent, being slanderous, just being nasty is not the way. It's not God's way. It's not our way as Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us that's the way of the unregenerate. We're not to, to imitate that. We're to imitate Christ. Second Peter says the same thing, 2.10. Just read it to you real quick. <clears throat> He's talking about the doom of false teachers in the end days. And he says this, The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and how to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and they despise authority. How you treat authority figures says a lot about you. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. Look, we have a lot of authority figures that are just plain wicked people. And they do wicked things. And we should be upset at that. But there's a way to disagree with that. There's a way to disagree with your parents. You may have ungodly parents. A lot of people do. But there's still a way to disagree with them that is godly. Does that make sense? And the way to do that is with reverence and with honor and respect. By the way, that's how we're supposed to do apologetics as well. I've got someone that's an atheist. I've got someone that's an agnostic. They're a hater of God. Well, there's a way for me to challenge that. And it's not by being a smart mouth. I take the good argument, but I present it in an honorable manner. What am I saying here? I'm saying it matters the way that we do things. It matters not just what we say. But it matters how we say it. By the way, Jude says the same thing. I've got to go back, though. Jude 1.8 says, Disrespect for authority figures is a sign of an unregenerate life. That is all over the, the Scriptures, and yet we like to pretend it's not there. Because we want to be free to be able to be disrespectful if we so choose. In fact, we even take up the culture's mantra. Our culture's mantra is that love must be given. It's... it's um, it's unqualified, but respect has to be earned. You've got to earn my respect. Fine, show me that in Scripture. Scripture does not bear that out. Scripture commands us to respect people, especially authority figures, even if they don't, quote, deserve it. I've got news for you. None of you deserve love either. I don't deserve to be loved, and yet my wife loves me. That's because she has chosen to, I promise you. I don't re deserve respect, and yet my wife respects me. And again, I promise you, that's not because I deserve it. That's because it says something about her character. And it's the same thing for you. The way you speak to others says something about your character. I'm going to brag on you, Jack. Forgive me. 
Jack's just gotten a really neat opportunity to go uh, work for a senator uh, at the Capitol, which is awesome. I've been writing a reference for him. And I promise you'll probably see things there that are not good and they're not right. And it's good to say something about that. But there's a way to say something about that, too. Same thing for all of you. There's none of you who have lived this far in life. There's not one of you that's over the age of 18 that has not seen an authority figure do something wrong. There's not. And yet there's a way to go about that. There's a way to speak with honor. There's a way to speak with dignity that honors and reveres and respects them even while you disagree. Let me go on with this. Noah awoke from his wine. He knew what his younger son had done to him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, he will be to his brethren. Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He's saying this. He's going to be the lowest of the low. Noah, here's, here's, the, here's the other thing that we think about this cursing thing that we don't understand. We think the curse of Ham and Canaan came upon them because Noah said it. That is incorrect. Noah recognized this character trait. What Noah was speaking was matter of fact. Ham, you're a disrespectful little stinker. And guess what that means? You're teaching it to your children too. And your child, your, your oldest boy here, your boy is going to not only will he take up what you've done, he'll go even farther. And because of that, he's going to be the lowest of the low. He'll be the most degraded, the most deplorable, the most depraved. He's going to be a servant of servants. He's going to be the lowest of the low because of this thing which is in you, which you're now passing on to your kids. And by the way, was that true? Yes. The Canaanites who basically hated all things good, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Hittites, those were all offspring of Ham. Why? Why, why did they despise those things that were, that were good? Because they, they learned that. They learned that behavior was just fine. Their natural depravity, along with basically their dad saying, hey, that's a good thing, do it, gave us a society that was absolutely without moral bounds. And it's the same thing today. You are, if you're raising children, you're raising depraved sinners, okay, obviously. And you have a choice on how you're going to react to that, right? Will this be allowed? Will this be permitted or not? You have no right to whine and complain about something you permit. And I have seen this before. I actually, when I was a coach, there was a, a young man that was, he was my size. He was a big kid. And his parents come up to me one day and they're telling me about how disrespectful he is. And you got to change that. And I literally sat down and I did not make any good friends out of this. But I said, look, you've allowed that up to now. And now that he's big enough that he can do it to you, now you're mad about it. And when he did it to everybody else, when he was in third and fourth and fifth and sixth grade, you thought it was cute. But now that he's doing it to you, now it's a problem? And you want me to change it when he's 16, 17, 18 years old? You're reaping what you've sown. Let me tell you something. There are some of us that do that very thing. Oh, it's cute when my kid's the one that's disrespectful to his teacher. It's cute when my kid's the one that's disrespectful to the principal. It's cute when my kid's the one that's disrespectful to, you know, people's parents or whoever is out in society. But then when they're big enough that they can be disrespectful to me, by golly, don't you know what the scriptures say? Well, guess what, hypocrite? You trained him. 
If you think it's cute when they're disrespectful when they're five, what will you think when they're that way when they're 15 or 20? And they're being that way to you. Why were Shem and Japheth blessed? They had reverence for their dad. Do you think they approved of him being naked, being drunk and naked? No. But what did they do? They still looked out for his good. They covered him. They protected him. They protected his dignity. They protected his honor. Do you know why we have all these? We have people today, and I've been one of them. You read this story and they go, hey, obviously what he must have done is, he must have gone in there and like, you know, sexually assaulted his dad. That's how his dad knew what was going on when he woke up. I mean, that's the only thing that could be so bad that he would get up and curse him, right? No. We live in a society that doesn't realize how wicked and evil it is for us to be dishonorable. And so, therefore, we cannot grasp how in the world could this guy have done something that was worthy of this kind of a curse when all he did, basically, was be disrespectful to his dad. That's why. Because it's a big deal to God. How did he know? Well, I don't know. Maybe he woke up during his stupor and saw that it was ham in there. And then he goes outside and, you know, they're telling, he's, he sees ham or Canaan or whoever telling jokes about Noah. <laughs> you think he's righteous? Idiot. He's in there uncovered. He's naked in his tent because he's drunk. What a moron. That's a big deal. There's a certain amount of character that you have to be without to be so bold as to be that kind of disrespectful to your authorities. It says a lot about you. It doesn't say much about your authorities. It sure says a lot about you. You've gone through it and so have I. I'm going to tell you this. You will, there is not a person on earth who will live in a place where their authorities are not ever wrong or don't ever do the wrong thing or don't ever speak in the wrong tone. They won't. All of us will. If you've ever had a job, I promise, you've been under an authority that made bad decisions. If you've ever been raised by parents, you've been under authorities that make bad decisions. Because they're human too. And yet God tells us there's a way that we should handle that. And it's not by mocking them or scorning them. It's not by being a smart mouth. It's not by challenging them like I once did. Stupid. My dad, my stepdad was a boxer in the Navy, and I got pretty mouthy. I was 17 or 18, and he was like, you want to go? And I said, you bet. I thought we were going to box, and I was like, I'll show the old man. Boy, I thought that made me tough. What an idiot. Thankfully, my dad was smarter than that. He said, hmm, I see that you're you know, getting disrespectful. Maybe you should live in your own roof where you pay the bills. I remember thinking, this didn't work out the way I thought it would. That probably wasn't the smartest thing I ever did. They kicked me out. I was about 17. I guess I was 17. They kicked me out of the house. You know what? They were right to do so. That's hard to say. At 17, I wouldn't have said that. At almost 40, I can guarantee you that was right. Because I was a disrespectful little cretin, even against what my parents had taught me. My mom had drugged me to church. She had taught me better. I didn't want anything to do with it. Proper respect is a big deal. Authority is a big deal with the Lord. And it shows a lot about us, the way that we react to it. The way that we treat our parents, our grandparents, 
the elderly in our society, our authorities, the boss at work, the cop that pulls me over. The way that we react to them and treat them says a lot about us. And when we do it the right way, when we are honorable, do you know what we gain? A lot of times we gain a hearing. We're able to present the gospel and they'll actually listen to it and consider it because they've seen it in our lives. I can tell you as a teacher, I've had a lot of disrespectful students. Do you think if I were a teacher that were unregenerate and the most disrespectful kid in my class came up to me and said, hey, you need to hear about Jesus, do you think I'd give any credence to that? No. You're out of your mind. I don't care what you think about Jesus or anything else. Because for somebody that talks a lot about it, it sure hadn't changed your life any. I think it might be different if it was the kid that was respectful. The kid that even when I do what's wrong, look, I'm a teacher. I make mistakes. I say the wrong things. Right? I grade the wrong way sometimes. I miss, I miss points on assignments. I lose my temper. I do all the things that people do. And yet, here's this kid who, day after day, they model it. When they come and tell me the gospel, they think I'm going to listen to it. I guarantee I'll listen even if I don't agree. Why? They've shown it to me. The words coming out of their mouth match the actions coming out of them too. And that's worthy of respect. It's worthy of honor. When the words coming out of our mouth don't match our lifestyle, who wants to hear it? That's a large part of apologetics. That's why Peter said the same thing, right? Before you can even do apologetics, you must honor Christ in your heart first, then be ready to give an answer to all those who ask. Those two things work together, and we should be models of that as Christians. Okay, taking up enough of the time beating on that dead horse, but I want you to realize our culture doesn't get that. Our culture has no respect for its elders. It has no respect for its parents. It has no respect for its grandparents. It has no respect for its teachers, its police, its judges, anybody in any kind of authority figure. That's why people love firemen, because firemen don't have authority over you. They can't take you to jail. They hate the cops. Yay, firemen! Take that cop. Why? Because the cop has authority over you. He can take you to jail. Of course, until you need him. Right? Then you call him because you hear a bump in the night. And you're like, why weren't you here faster? Wait, time out. Aren't you the one that's always cussing us? You want us to get to your house faster now? Funny how that works, isn't it? Now, we should be the ones that, that are modeling Christ's kind of obedience, Christ's kind of reverence. Christ's kind of respect. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you change us, Lord. I know as one, um, I have been a disrespectful um, despiser of good, despiser of authority. And yet, Father, we don't want to be that way. We want to be people who model what you've said is good and right and true, and that is to be honorable to our parents, honorable to those who are elderly, honorable to our authorities, that we can disagree, but we do so in a disagreeable, in a, um, an honorable manner when we disagree, that we can disagree with what they say or the things that they hold or the positions that they hold, but we do so in a manner that's still honorable, that honors them, and that most importantly, that honors you. I thank you for it, Lord. I ask you to change us to be more like you, that the world can see more of you through us. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name.